Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I said last week I'd have a special guest with me this week, and boy have I ever. One way or another, Robin Rennick, or more properly the Lord Rennick of Clifton, has been a part of the South African drama for close to 40 years. He was Margaret Thatcher's ambassador to South Africa from 1987 to 1991, tumultuous, frightening and I'm sure thrilling years as apartheid died and a new South Africa began to be born. He became friends with uh, President F.W. de Klerk, uh, with Nelson Mandela, Helen Sussman, about whom he recently wrote a really good biography. After Pretoria, he became the UK ambassador to Washington, D.C., the highest possible rung on the British diplomatic ladder. But Robin Rennick has never really left us. Uh, he spends a great deal of time on and in South Africa and has an extensive network of friends and contacts here. In London, he is easily the most important first port of call for intelligence on current UK thinking about South Africa. He's back this week to give the F.W. de Klerk Memorial Lecture, an address to be given in memory of someone I suspect he came to really admire. But Robin, it's also um, more than an opportunity to remember. This country is in the deepest possible hole. Um, will you be able to help us find a way out of it? Well, I would love to try to help you find a way out of it. Um, and the title of my lecture, the de Klerk Lecture, um, is F.W. de Klerk and the need for another new beginning. Because I was here when F.W. and Mandela, with whom I had just as many meetings at the time, uh, both told me that their hope was to give South Africa a new beginning. And as we all know and remember, that's exactly what they did. They saved uh, this country, your country from a catastrophic situation, ever-increasing violence, ever-increasing isolation, and turned it into a far more normal country. And their biggest ambition of all was has actually been achieved, because you have today what they hoped would be achieved, a far more normal society a normal multiracial society. You obviously have, as in, as in every country, occasional expressions of racism, uh, but generally speaking, South Africans across the races are living together harmoniously and with many, many friendships across the races, which is what they hoped would happen. Nonetheless, the start and the desire for a, for a, for a new country might have been strong and certainly sincere. Um, but if you look around South Africa now, there's so much broken uh, here. And I just wonder what has gone wrong. You know, you um, you refer in your memoir, which I've just reread, not quite a diplomat. Uh, you refer a lot to the tensions Nelson Mandela faced after his release, um, trying to be his own man and at the same time trying to sort of tread the party line. And when you watch Cyril Ramaphosa today, I sometimes wonder whether anything has really changed. Something has changed because what, what the difference between then and now is that, you know, we, we, we've run out of electricity. Our education is worse than it was. Hospitals are broken. Cities and towns are broken. Our ports don't function. There's no SAA to speak of really anymore. Was that all inevitable? Well, what is absolutely true, and it's the theme of my, my talk, is that the great hopes that were then engendered of a new beginning 
have really largely faded away uh, because I mean the, the the subject we all ought to be most concerned about of all is education because basic state education in South Africa is catastrophically bad. You have almost the lowest literacy and numeracy rates in Africa, let alone in the world, but in Africa. Now, that's 28 years after one person, one vote. This is a catastrophic failure for a whole generation of young South Africans. For how can people hope to live normal lives and get jobs if they can neither read nor write nor count? And that is where we are. Um, and it's no use talking about uh, upliftment of the poor and helping them uh, in all possible ways, including social grants, etc. If they're left in a situation where they're so badly educated that they can't need, lead normal lives and can't get jobs. And the reason for this is well known. It is a main reason for it is the teachers union, which has always opposed the testing of teachers or inspection of teachers' classrooms and so on. So you're left with millions of unqualified, incompetent, uninspected teachers. And you can't ever improve this, this situation without doing something about that. And when it comes to the next election in South Africa, I hope that all of you will ask each party what precisely they intend to do about this appalling situation. But go back to the beginning. So you were, you 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 know were were the outlines of this failure there, or were they still not suggesting that you left in nineteen ninety one? But you you would have had a very good, and you were extremely well connected, and you were part of the story. Was failure on that level simply to teach a child to read, simply let alone provide them with a decent toilet to go uh, uh, to use when they go to school or a decent meal when they're at school. Was there, was there any warning then that you, thinking back, uh, we might have missed? Because when, you, when we talk about the union, it's, all, it's fine, but it's, it's the, the government that the union supports and which depends on the union allows it to get away with the behavior that it does. Yes. Well, no one imagined then that this would happen. I mean, you know, we all denounced Bantu education. Your educational system today is not really much better than that, which is just an appalling situation. Now, nobody thought then, I mean, there were high hopes then of a much vastly improved educational system. Kader Asmal and many others were trying to work on that, um, but it never happened. And the reason it has never happened in terms of basic education is the relationship between the ruling party and the teachers' union. And unless the government does something about that relationship and does overcome or uh, veto the, the, their veto on inspections and testing, then this situation is not going to improve. And I don't right now see any sign of that happening. Given that, I mean, and, and just from a wider perspective, you talk about new beginnings in your in your lecture. Is a new beginning actually possible uh, with in with with the current in our current body politic? Let's say with our current where you know where we stand today. The ANC is the ruling party. Let's assume 
that it doesn't win a full majority uh, um, after the 2024 election, uh, but it'll still be by way the biggest party, by way the most important party. How do we start again? Okay, well, let's talk first about the other catastrophic failures. You know, the other thing that Mandela and de Klerk would be most appalled about, and de Klerk was appalled about, is the level of unemployment. For, ne nearly 40% unemployment 20 years, 28 years later. Now, you know, that is a, a horrendous situation, and it stems from the lack of economic growth. Now, the other amazing failure which we all experience are what, what you call load shedding and what the rest yeah. of the world calls power cuts, yeah. which is the real term that should always be used about it. Now, those power cuts have been inflicted on South Africa deliberately by the ruling party, by the ruling party's absolute refusal to tolerate independent power producers filling the gap which the state-owned state -owned enterprise couldn't fill. Now, your present uh, Minister of Energy and all previous ANC Ministers of Energy fought tooth and nail against allowing independent producers to produce their own electricity and sell the surplus to the grid. Now, there at least, once you've fallen over the edge of the precipice, which in this case you have, yeah. economic reality has broken in. And the president has insisted at long last that independent power producers must be allowed to, to make up the deficit which the state sector can't. It will take years for it to do so, yeah. but that will happen, and that problem is going to be fixed. But then you have you know, the gigantic problem of the addiction of the ruling party to the state-run everything, and especially the state-run enterprises. Now, all of them, virtually all of them, are failing in one way or another. And you've discovered the solution for power. The same solution exists for other SOEs if the government changes direction and agrees to develop partnerships with business in each sector. Now, in Transnet, for instance, you have an appalling performance at the ports. You have mm -hmm. the slowest turnaround times in your ports, almost anyone can think of. And the mining community cannot export a huge proportion of their produce at all through the ports. Now, next, right next door in Maputo, you have a port run but you have the, the port owned by the government, which always ought to continue, but run by DP World, Dubai World, and Grinrod, and it works. And as a result, a lot of your miners are shipping their export produce by, by road to Maputo and then out through Maputo. Now, those two companies run many of the, probably even most of the ports in Africa. Yeah. Now, Grindrod has all sorts of South African connections, obviously. Why on earth does Transnet not ask Grindrod to help bail them out by helping to run the ports? Uh, the miners themselves have suggested that they could perfectly well run the main coal and iron export lines just the way the miners do in Australia. And failing that, it's no use tinkering with Transnet. It's not going to work. 
Now, what I've just suggested will be fiercely resisted by the, the, the present government, but in the end, it will happen. And it will happen because there isn't any alternative and it will have to happen. But meanwhile, the head of Transnet told the miners at the Indaba in Johannesburg that when they seek to renew their new contracts, each one will have to be uh, changed to uh, make room for 30 or 40 percent of production in future to be by, quotes, new emerging companies. So that message to the miners is an amazing message. Uh, what they're being told is you need the big miners, all of you, um, you know, Anglo, Sibanyi, Arm, Exaro, need to cut your production, look forward to cutting your production by 30 to 40 percent, and the gap will be made up by, quotes, new emerging companies, which don't exist at the moment. And, you know, as with ESCOM, when they try to do exactly this, the new emerging companies are very unlikely to be able, in many cases, to deliver the, the freight on time as expected. Now, in other words, you're going backwards. Yeah. Another way in which you're going backwards is the uh, Employment Equity Amendment Bill, which is waiting for the president's signature. Now, that mandates that for every company in South Africa employing more than 50 people, it must be subject to racial quotas. It must exactly reflect the makeup of the population. Now, that is going to cause not only discam, but almost every other company in South Africa to pursue a kind of no more whites policy. Wherever there is any, you know, quotes surplus of whites. Now, the, the unintended effect of that, or possibly even the intended effect, is going to make well-qualified young white South Africans feel that there isn't much of a future for them in the South African economy. And they will, believe me, be snapped up elsewhere, as they already are in Britain, Australia, and the United States. And this will be another loss, unnecessary, totally unnecessary loss of skills. Robin, the, uh, I wonder whether what we're experiencing now is actually the end of apartheid. You know, we, it, it, one would have thought, well, with the democratic election in 1994, that was it. But, you know, why would anything as horrible as apartheid was have ended happily uh, just by, you know, by fear 20 years ago? Perhaps this mess is the, the, the real end and that as you say, things will have to change because they simply have to. The ports have to function. The electricity has to come on. Um, I'm not really making uh, making the, the point well, I suppose. If Cyril Ramaphosa is going to London later this month, he has a state visit, he's going to meet the king. During that time, I presume he'll meet um, uh, other people and there'll be uh, other functions. Does he have an investment case to take? To London anymore? Do you think? Well, not nearly as much as one, of one as you should have. Everybody likes Cyril. You know, he's a very nice guy. As we both know very well. I've known him for thirty-five years, and he wants to. He means well. He wants to do the right things. Uh, to many people, many of his, many of his most ardent supporters have been disappointed by what he's been able to do so far. Uh, which is always attributed to the fact that he's a prisoner of his party. 
but if he doesn't, you know, if he if he is re-elected and he doesn't do any better in the next term, this is not going to be a happy outcome. Now, you're right. This is the end of apartheid. I mean, de Klerk and Mandela between them gave you a soft landing. You're now experiencing a hard landing um, because the truth is that you know if if Cyril, everybody will be polite to Cyril, but everybody knows that things are not working out well economically in South Africa at, at present. Uh, and not only that, the performance, people will not be so rude as to say this to his face, but the performance of South Africa over the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been verging on craven. And, you know, people feel that way about it. Um, you know, he, he will get a very good reception, but not on that subject. On investment, you know, mining and mining investors worldwide, you are now, you are now ranked in the 10th worst destinations for mining investment worldwide. Now think about that. And the reason is that anybody who has had the misfortune, as I have had, to deal with your Department of Mineral Resources never wants to have anything to do with them again. A wonderful mixture under, uh, under Zuma, but not only under Zuma, of corruption, arrogance, and incompetence. Who wants to come? and try and invest on that basis here, especially when you're about to try to cut, Transnet is about to try to cut the productive capacity of your existing miners. So, you know, I'm, I'm told, you know, Cyril has been working very hard to get investment from the Middle East, uh, from China, etc., etc. Uh, but it's not a very strong investment case at present vis-a-vis -vis your traditional investors who make up the huge bulk of investment in South Africa, and that's the United States and Europe. And when I a conference some time ago in London about whether South Africa was still investable, it was under Zuma, the conclusion was that it was, so long as the investments were away from the government. Now, you know, the reason these SOEs cannot function effectively is because you do not have a competent state. Anybody who's ever had anything to do with your bureaucracy will testify to that. You can't run these companies with the existing bureaucracy uh, running them. I mean, these are businesses. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we have just managed, and it took us only seven weeks, to get rid of a prime minister who wanted to deny economic reality. It may take you another seven years to get economic reality in Transnet or some of the other SOEs, but it's going to have to happen in the end. You've got to have to ask the private sector to help do what the public sector can't, what the state sector can't. Now, you've done that. You've done that for electricity. You're going to have to do it in other areas too. I mean, this is not rocket science, and it's furthermore, in the, in the early years, and Becky ran an economic policy which was working. It was pro-growth, fiscal discipline, etc. And you did have unemployment down to 20%, and you were growing at nearly 4% a year. Now, your prospects for economic growth at present are less than 2% a year. And that just, that just redistributes poverty. It doesn't distribute any wealth. Yeah. You, you you were making a point earlier on that I was interested in about uh, attitudes towards our attitude 
about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I worry sometimes that South Africans don't understand the English when they are, are talking to them because obviously English people are reserved and um, they are, you know, not confrontational. So there are a lot of people in the South African government who believe that our failure to condemn the invasion uh, or to condemn the annexations is basically fine and it's not really going to affect our place in the world. And that surely, uh, Robin, has to be um, wrong. Well, it is wrong because it does affect the attitude towards you within the foreign policy establishments, for what that's worth, in the United States uh, and in Europe. It really does. I mean, it is regarded as, shall we say, disappointing. Uh, beyond that, you know, your foreign policy, if you want to pursue a foreign policy, I mean, how, how can you fail to condemn Putin threatening nuclear war? I mean, the Chinese two days ago told him to stop doing it. Mm. How can you fail to tell him to stop threatening nuclear war? Please ask your foreign ministry. Yeah, no, it's it's terrifying. The the so we also oppose. I th I think officially, I'm not sure the sanctions are p are placed on on Russia for invading a sovereign state. And I remember the ANC fought very hard during your time here as ambassador for the West to keep up sanctions against South Africa after Mandela was released. And Mrs. Thatcher opposed them, and so did Helen Sussman. And I think you probably shared that view. And in fact, you wrote a book about economic sanctions uh, a long time ago. Do they do they work in your view? To some extent, they do. What, by the way, we opposed was further sanctions. We already yeah. opposed arms sanctions, oil sanctions, and you know some other sanctions. We didn't favour uh, cause trying to cause mass unemployment in South Africa by blocking your agricultural exports. That would have just increased misery and not helped. Uh, at all, but so far as we could see. Now, the sanctions against you that did work, by the way, were armed sanctions. Uh, you mm. ended up with an under under equipped defense force, and that was going to cause you big problems. Uh, and it started to do so in Angola over time. So there are sanctions that are effective. What sanctions won't do, typically, is change your regime. They, what they can do is try to make it much harder for a regime to succeed. Uh, and that actually, to some extent, is what did happen in South Africa. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's an argument that you can have round a dinner table almost at the drop of a hat in South Africa. What, you know, what caused uh, FW to release Mandela? And I'm sure sanctions would have played a big role in, in getting the country to the point where apartheid just became too expensive. No, it did. I mean, my friends at the time were Johann Haynes, head of the Reformed Church, Peter mm -hmm. de Lange, head of the Broderbond, Herod uh, de Kock, head of the Reserve Bank, and FW. And they all understood that if you went on with no external investment, exporting your own savings to invest to, to pay your debts, then the, the economy could never really grow fast enough. To, to keep stay ahead of the, of the population increase. They all understood that. Now, the fundamental reason FW made the change was religious, personal, and moral. 
he felt that he could not continue to defend so unjust a regime. Now, he was blamed for not having reached that conclusion much earlier, but mm. the best apology you could make for apartheid was to abolish it. And never please forget that much as, you know, I adored Mandela, but much as I admired him immensely, um, it was not Mandela, it was F.W. de Klerk who actually abolished apartheid. He repealed every single apartheid law, including the cornerstone of the whole system, the Population Registration Act, which is just being reintroduced for private companies by the, your Minister of Labour. Well, I mean, you know, we, what we've done is replaced one set of nationalists for another set of nationalists, it seems to me. Is there is there a story to tell or is it simply, are we simply a hopeless case? I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about sort of white English liberals. Has liberalism helped in any way in South Africa, if you look back, do you think? Of course it did. I and mean, what did Helen Sussman achieve over 13 years on her own in the South African Parliament. Uh, you know, bright star in a dark chamber was what we mm. called her. She kept the flag of decency flying. And in the end, you know, she actually was an admirer of F.W. de Klerk. It, but she always used to tell him in my presence, well done, you just made the same speech I made 20 years ago. She would with her characteristic sense of humor, but it wasn't just that somebody had to had to stand up for basic principles. And you are yeah. right, Peter. There are, I can see, uncanny resemblances between the National Party, as was, and the ANC today. The ANC today have the same mixture of relictors. There are many decent and honorable people in it, epitomized by Halema, Motlante, etc., and Pravin Gordon, who has done everything he possibly could to eradicate corruption, and other people like them. And then there are the Verkramta. And the Verkramta at the moment appear at least to be equal in number, if not more. It's a, it's a, scary, it's a scary time uh, for, for this country. And, 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 um, and the, the, you can't keep carrying on with failed enterprises. So they will, you know, in the end, in the end, Transnet will have to team up with the private sector to solve its problems. In the end, you know, there's got, there will be a much healthier relationship between the government and you know, the business community than there is now. Uh, the government, you know, the, the regime doesn't like the business community because it doesn't think it can control them enough which it's now trying to do through the Employment Equity Act. Mm. Will have to well, you were right, you were right to, to mention seven years, because I think while people have high hopes for the 2024 election, I think 2029 is going to be much more, um, uh, a much more powerful moment. Um, well, I agree with that, because I personally think that post-Cyril, uh, who masks many of its problems, the post-Cyril, the ruling party will be in danger of falling off a cliff. Completely. And, and that is why I find it so amazing that the opposition parties insist on remaining so, not just so fragmented, they don't have to merge or anything, but unless they form an effective coalition 
or an effective alliance, they're never going to be capable of providing any alternative for South Africa other than uh, a system that isn't working very well. Yeah. Robin, the story that you tell, and that I love, and I'd love to share it with uh, listeners, was um, Madiba's first meeting, one and only meeting, I think it was, with Margaret Thatcher. And you you write about it in Not Quite a Diplomat, and you, you prepped them. You, you pretended uh, to be Thatcher. Did you actually go to the actual meeting in Downing Street as well? Yes, I did. I mean, a week before the meeting, uh, uh, Mandela's attitude to Thatcher was precisely the opposite of his party, and that wasn't the only way he felt <laughs> the opposite of his party, yeah. because his idea was what he wanted to know from me was how do I get her on my side? Uh, so he asked me to go and see him. He was in a private clinic in Johannesburg suffering from exhaustion, and I said, look, you know, for this meeting, let's do have a dress rehearsal. You can be Mandela, I'll be Thatcher. He, he roared with laughter, thought that was a great idea. So he said, yes, so I fought all this time for one person in vote, etc. And I said, we, we agree with you about all of that. Now, please stop all this nonsense about nationalizing the banks and the mines. So he laughed and went off. I went to see Margaret Thatcher just before Mandela walked through the door. And I said to her, He's wait, please remember, he's, he's waited 27 years to tell you his side of the story. Please let him do so. You mustn't, you mean I mustn't interrupt, she said. <laughs> I said, yes, please, at least not for the first. What a torture for her. So he, Mandela came in, you know, his presence immediately produced a very positive effect, as it always did. She listened to him for a whole hour, and then she said, but we agree with you about all that. Um, now, please stop all this nonsense about nationalizing the banks and the mines, whereupon he burst out laughing. She couldn't understand why, but it was because of our prior rehearsal. Anyhow, they got on extremely well. The meeting went on so long, in fact, three hours, that the British press in, the, in Downing Street outside started chanting, Free Nelson Mandela. <laughs> he walked out of the door. He said correctly, she is an enemy of apartheid. And we have a lot to be thankful to her for, because he knew through Helen Sisman that she had written far more letters, far more phone calls to the ghastly P.W. Bota to try to get him released than all other heads of government combined. Robin Rennick, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for not giving up on us and thank you for coming back this week. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> on you, I'm sure that this will come out more positively and it will take more time, but it will come out positively than it is today. I'm sure. This is still a great country, as you say, and we're also going to win the world, uh, the Rugby World Cup next year, which will help. One country that's not going to win rugby gold cup texture is right here in britain i think i think you have a good chance yes i'm afraid so yeah meanwhile thank you all for listening uh i'll be back next week stay safe